uh, thank you for attending today's webinar. Uh, I'm also joined today uh, by one of my colleagues, uh, Chris Dorini. Uh, Chris is the uh, Deputy Chief Economist, and he's graciously agreed to uh, curate uh, your questions. So uh, feel free to fire away uh, on the Q&A, and he'll uh, uh, pose those questions to me uh, towards the end of the conversation. In fact, I'll, I'll speak for about 40, 45 minutes, go through some slides, uh, and then uh, we'll go to your, your questions and comments. Uh, so uh, looking forward to that. And thanks, Chris. Chris, as you, many of you may be aware, Chris is uh, one of, uh, along with Ryan Sweet, one of my uh, the co two colleagues that joined me on Inside Economics. It's our uh, podcast that we've been doing now. Hard to believe, Chris, but it's, I think it's like seven months we've been doing it. And we do it every week. Uh, and um, uh, Heather, who's producing today's webinar, uh, indicated that if you go to the resource button, you should see a resource button, you'll uh, find a, uh, a link to Inside Economics. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today on this webinar, we, we chat about on the uh, podcast as well. But thanks, Chris, for, for participating. Appreciate that. Okay. Uh, to, the, to the show, uh, to, the, to the webinar, uh, it's it, very simple, two parts. Part one, I'm just going to give you a sense of the baseline outlook, uh, the most likely uh, outlook for the economy in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes. This is uh, this is our baseline, and then I'm part two going to turn to the risks, and I'm going to focus mostly on downside risks. I think that's still apropos, but I'll end on a on a, on a positive note on an upside risk, uh, just to uh, round things out a little bit. And then we'll we'll turn to the Q and A. Okay, so let's just dive in the baseline. I think this uh, first uh, chart nicely shows where we've been and where we're headed, or at least where I think we're headed, uh, again, in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes. This is uh, employment, jobs, uh, millions, uh, going back to the start of uh, 2019 monthly data all the way through the end of uh, 2024. So I'm giving you a few years of uh, forecast as well. You can see the recession, the pandemic uh, COVID-19 recession, uh, very severe back March, April of last, of last year. We lost 22 million jobs. Unemployment got to about 15%. Peak to trough decline in GDP, real GDP, the valuable things that we produced uh, was about 10%, so 10% uh, peak to trough. For context, in the financial crisis, which uh, I thought was a doozy back a little over a decade ago. Real GDP peaked across fell about 4%, so kind of gives you a sense of magnitude. Uh, we've been recovering ever since, uh, a lot of it driven by the massive monetary and fiscal policy support. The Fed obviously very aggressive in early on in uh, providing various credit facilities to keep the financial markets uh, operating, um, lowered uh, short-term rates to the zero lower bound, but began uh, engaged in uh, aggressive quantitative easing, bond buying to keep long-term rates down. And, and on the fiscal policy side, uh, that uh, gotten uh, all in, by my calculation, uh, just over $5 trillion in fiscal support, beginning with the CARES Act back in March of 2020, and uh, extending through the American Rescue Plan, which was uh, passed into law under President Biden in March of 2021. Uh, a lot of other 
support provided along the way, but uh, $5 trillion or 25% of GDP roughly in total. Again, for a little bit of context, back in the financial crisis, uh, if you took up all the fiscal support during the crisis and immediately after before policy turned uh, to austerity, uh, the support then was about 10% of GDP, so uh, a lot of support. Uh, you can see uh, where I think things are headed. The forecast is uh, the shaded part of the chart. A few key assumptions here. First, that we've achieved what I'm calling herd resistance. This doesn't have any kind of official definition. I'm just using this as a way to describe the, the uh, assumption that uh, the pandemic is, uh, you know, obviously still raging, but it is slowly winding down that each new wave of the virus is uh, less disruptive, at least from an economic perspective, than the previous wave. So the Delta wave that, you know, we've been suffering through is, it's been disruptive, and I'll come back to that in the context of uh, the risks, but uh, it's done less, it's done economic damage, but it's done less economic damage than the wave that struck back at the start of this year and obviously the initial waves of the virus when there was so much uncertainty. So I'm assuming that, uh, and this is a key assumption, that the pandemic uh, steadily winds down. Vaccination rates uh, continue to increase, uh, get more therapeutics, figure out how to mitigate the virus. It's not going away, and there will probably be more waves, but uh, they'll be less, uh, less disruptive. Uh, I'm also assuming uh, more fiscal support to the economy, uh, some variation of what's being debated in Congress. Uh, uh, currently, uh, the, bill, the, the Biden Build Back Better agenda, uh, uh, kind of on the, on the table, is a $550 billion 10-year uh, public infrastructure plan, um, and then a $3.5 trillion let's call it social infrastructure plan, uh, that it's a, uh, a range of support for, uh, for different social programs from education to housing to health care to child care to climate change. Uh, the $550 billion package, that has bipartisan support, the $3.5 trillion social infrastructure package uh, will uh, be done under reconciliation with only Democratic votes. Uh, now, I you know, I, I don't think that entire package is going to ultimately get through. So we're assuming the $550 billion package does and $2.5 trillion reconciliation package finally makes its way through uh, the legislative process, gets signed into law uh, uh, by the end of October going into November, and is implemented in early uh, 2022. And that does provide some support to the economy beginning in uh, late 22 going into 23, but particularly in 24 and 25, that's the peak of the uh, uh, impact from uh, that plan. And it also helps to support uh, longer-term economic growth, which I'll talk about uh, in, a, in a few minutes in the context of the risks. In terms of uh, monetary policy, uh, uh, the support is now starting to uh, starting to fade. Uh, the Fed ended its uh, credit facilities towards the start of this year, it's just about ready to begin winding down its quantitative easing, its so-called tapering QE. Looks like that probably will begin in November. They're buying $120 billion every month in Treasury securities and NBS, mortgage-backed securities, 
that'll get wound down steadily and come to an end by uh, kind of this time next year. And then if everything uh, sticks to, to the script, uh, certainly the script I'm showing you here, the Fed will begin to normalize short-term interest rates uh, just about the time the economy pulls into full employment. And you can see in the chart that would be uh, in our baseline sometime early 2023. Uh, 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 full employment would be something consistent with the uh, uh, unemployment rate in the mid-threes, uh, kind of sort of where we were pre-pandemic, and uh, somewhat higher participation rate. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we were well over 63% labor force participation. I don't think we're going back there just because we've got a lot of boomers retire early, and they're not coming back, I don't think. So full employment would be consistent with a participation rate that's probably just south of uh, 63%. Uh, but we expect that uh, by uh, early 2023. Uh, just as a point of interest, to, to get from here to there uh, by early 23, that will require the economy to generate you know, something like a half million jobs uh, every single month on average. Some months it'll be softer, like last month because of Delta, we only got 250,000 jobs roughly. The month before that, in July, we got a million jobs, but that was before Delta. Uh, so, you know, I think there's going to be some ups and downs and all arounds here, thus the windy road to recovery, but uh, about a half a million jobs uh, you know, per month. Um, just to round things out on the baseline, I know there's a lot of interest in long, the path for long-term interest rates that is also critical to the outlook. And uh, here uh, there's a, you know, obviously forecasting anything is, is uh, tough, but forecasting long-term interest rates is particularly intrepid, but, uh, but here it goes. The 10-year Treasury bond today is sitting at about 1.5%, up a little bit from where it was a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, we expect the 10-year Treasury yield to end this year at one5 Seven five percent. I'm rounding, obviously, but you know, orders of magnitude. Two and a half percent by the end of 2022. Three percent by the end of 2023. And by mid-decade, when the economy's in full employment, inflation's at the Fed's target. The world's economy's in equilibrium. Let's say uh, that uh, the the uh, equilibrium ten-year treasury yield should be about three and a half percent. So that's where I think it's going to settle in. Uh, the funds rate will be closer to 2.5%, so you have a, a spread between the two of about a percentage point, about 100 basis points. Um, if that's the path for rates, uh, that does suggest that the, the yield curve, the difference between long rates and short rates, will uh, become even wider here over the next uh, uh, 12 months. Uh, so for a lot of you in the financial system uh, where yield curves matter uh, in terms of uh, of margins and uh, profitability, uh, I, I think you'll be able to enjoy a somewhat wider yield curve here. Okay, uh, that's the uh, the baseline, uh, most likely scenario. I, I, you know, I do want to say one more thing about the baseline before moving on to the risks, uh, and that is uh, there will be some longer term consequences. And you know, I I, I run the risk of uh, of uh, overhyping the Inside Economics podcast. <laughs> But here goes. Uh, last last uh, week, uh, in the last uh, week's podcast, we did talk about some of the longer-term consequences of 
of the of the uh, pandemic. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Chris, you focused on demographics, a uh, very important uh, impact on demographic returns. Ryan, he focused on uh, on uh, debt, uh, sovereign debt, and co- uh, corporate debt globally. Uh, nervous about uh, the increase in indebtedness and what happens when interest rates do rise. Again, I'll talk about that in the risks. And then I talked about remote work, and uh, I do think this uh, is a very significant shift, long-term consequence of the pandemic that has all kinds of economic implications. Uh, And you can kind of get a sense of that here in this slide, which shows net out-migration from urban cores uh, across the nation's 400-plus metropolitan areas. This is monthly data. Going back to the start of 07, the last data point is for uh, August. Uh, this is based on credit file data. We get a 10% sample, random sample of all the credit files in the country from Equifax every month. And um, uh, it's anonymized, uh, obviously, but we can see addresses, and so we can look at address changes. And based on that data, we can identify, you know, where uh, people are uh, moving, moving from and moving to. And, in, and the shaded part of the chart represents the uh, when the pandemic uh, the pandemic when the pandemic hit. And if you look pre-pandemic, in the 12 months leading up to the pandemic, uh, net out migration from urban cores—that's the number of people uh, you know, moving out of urban cores to suburbs, exurbs, and rural areas—less the number of people moving into urban cores—was somewhere south of 300,000. Currently, uh, as of August, again, the last data point, uh, 600,000, so more than a doubling in the net out migration. And you can see in the chart the top 10 areas that have uh, suffered the biggest increases in net out migration during the pandemic. Uh, no surprise, uh, New York and a number of other major areas in the Northeastern Corridor, Boston, Philly, our hometown, and uh, D.C., uh, on the West Coast, uh, Cal- uh, big California metro areas, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, I think Miami is in there. Yep, there's Miami, Chicago. Uh, and you- you'll notice that it, w- it looks like the net out migration is popping out, but the-, the other thing you'll notice is it's not really rolling over. So it remains very elevated. And I think that does go to the uh, increasing a prevalence of uh, various forms of remote work, and uh, I do think as technology improves and HR departments figure out how to empower uh, remote work, uh, we'll see more of it. Uh, given how tight labor markets are and likely to remain, given demographic trends going forward, even on the other side of the pandemic, I, I do think uh, workers have kind of the upper hand here in negotiations with their employers, and one of the things they're going to demand is uh, the ability to work from, you know, wherever they want to work. So this is a this is a, uh, a trend, a phenomenon that's here to stay. Um, it has, obviously, important implications for regional economies. So these areas shown here in the chart, uh, they suffer as people leave. And then, of course, the areas where they're going benefit. So, Folks from the Northeast are going to Atlanta and Charlotte and Tampa and Jacksonville and Orlando and Austin. And folks leaving uh, Seattle and the Bay Area and L.A., they're moving to Boise and Phoenix and Tucson and Vegas and Denver and Salt Lake City. So those areas really uh, benefit. And uh, you can see it in the employment data. You can see it in the house price data and housing demand, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. So... 
I, I do think the pandemic, uh, as they say, will have a long tail, and uh, one of one aspect of that long tail will be increased remote work. Okay, that that concludes part one, the baseline. Uh, hopefully, you got a pretty good sense of it. I think fair to say that uh, optimistic uh, about the economy's prospects. Uh, in fact, just to strike that point home, between the time when the pandemic hit to when the economy returns uh, to full employment, gets back to full swing, will be about three years. So uh, got hit early 2020, with back to full employment by early 23. Three years typically, and if you look at business cycles since World War II, takes about six, seven years for that to happen. And, of course, in the expansion after the financial crisis, it took us almost 10 years uh, to get get back. A lot of scarring after, so-called scarring after the financial crisis, but not so much after uh, the pandemic. So it's a relatively upbeat, optimistic baseline outlook. Uh, now, uh, however, uh, uh, being the economist, the good economist I strive to be, there's obviously a lot of risk uh, to this. So, you know, uh, part two, what could go wrong? And just to kind of encapsulate there are obviously many risks, uh, but just to kind of put it into some kind of relief and context, is this uh, what we call risk matrix. This is for the United States. So we do this for many countries around the globe, varies country by country, but this is for the U.S. Just to acclimate yourself to the matrix, the x-axis, the, uh, the, uh, the horizontal axis, is the severity of that, that risk or that shock. And this is kind of like a... There's time dimensions to this, too. It's kind of like a present value of the expected loss if the shock were to occur. So if it's a severe shock and it's uh, more likely in the near term, it, that is, that's a big deal. So, for example, the treasury, uh, def- treasury default, you can see that's all, all the way to the southeast part of the matrix. Uh, that, you know, while that has a low probability of happening, and I'll come, that's the horizontal axis, uh, it's, it, the severity of that shock would be very, very significant. Uh, you know, ca- I'd even put it in the uh, category catastrophic if, we actually, if the U.S. government actually defaulted here, uh, and we'll come back to that in a minute under the risks. Um, the, the, as I mentioned, the horizontal, excuse me, the vertical axis is the likelihood of the shock, uh, you know, obviously very subjective. So if you look at, at the kind of the northwest of the matrix, Fort Barron's cliff, this is hearkening uh, uh, to the fact that uh, many of the government supports that were provided during the pandemic to help uh, borrowers and debtors uh, kind of manage through are expiring. Um, you, you, there's a mortgage forbearance for borrowers of FHA, VA, Fannie Freddie loans. Uh, that's starting to wind down. There was student loan payment forbearance, uh, I believe, in her current rules, that's going to expire in January. Uh, there's moratoriums on for, uh, foreclosure for those government-backed loans. And, uh, of course, the rental eviction uh, moratorium, that uh, ended about a month ago now when the Supreme Court ruled that uh, the federal uh, rental eviction moratorium was unconstitutional. So that has ended. If you go back, I don't know, six months, certainly 12 months ago, uh, I would have thought the forbearance cliff was a much more significant risk to the economy. Many more borrowers, households were uh, under financial pressure, and if they hadn't gotten that support, we would have seen 
many more credit problems, many more foreclosures, many more defaults, and that would have more economic damage. But at this point, uh, much less so, uh, we've kind of worked through a lot of the problems and, and people are getting their, uh, getting uh, back on their feet financially. So this clip is it, it, it's going to happen, so very high probability, but the severity of the shock is very low. Finally, just the obvious uh, is in the northeast part of the chart, uh, the biggest, most significant risk with high likelihood and high severity is, well, we're going to have another wave of the pandemic. That feels like the message we learned from Delta. You know, unfortunately, you know, if you go back when the vaccines were being rolled out uh, earlier, earlier this year, there was a lot of optimism. And I was optimistic myself, you know, uh, thinking that perhaps this was the end of the pandemic. We'd not suffer any more material waves of the, of the virus or the Delta wave uh, putting an end to that. Uh, hope, uh, and uh, I do. I do think it's uh, uh, it would be it's appropriate to think that there will be other waves of the virus. Again, I'm assuming in the baseline that uh, each wave of the virus is less disruptive to the economy than the preceding one. But you know, obviously, a lot of risk around this. So I, I'm not going to go through all of this, and it's changing very rapidly. You can see the government shut down there, and that's already changed since I did the chart. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, this, is, this is moving all the time uh, and evolving, so I'm not going to go through it all, but if you have any questions about it, you know, feel free uh, to post them. Okay, so let's, uh, let's dive deeper into some of these risks, and I'm going to go through a handful of downside risks, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to end on an upside one just to, uh, just to because there are upside risks, and I think it, it, it I think it would be therapeutic and on a positive note and consistent with the overall message of this webinar. Uh, risk number one, uh, the pandemic. It's, you know, it's still raging. It's still doing damage. Uh, the Delta uh, wave vir uh, variant of the virus has done damage. Uh, you can see that in lots of different ways, uh, one of which is I'm showing you here. It has impacted sentiment, consumer sentiment. Uh, I'm showing two measures of consumer sentiment. Uh, the uh, blue line uh, is the uh, conference board survey of sentiment. The green line is the University of Michigan survey of sentiment. This is monthly data going back to 2019, start of 2019. And we, we got the September value from the conference board. Uh, I haven't gotten it yet for, for University of Michigan, I don't think. Or no, maybe we, just, we did since I did this chart. And I think it kind of it's kind of very consistent with with the last data point here. Maybe a little improved a little bit, but but the but the uh, uh, broader point is you can see that sentiment got not surprisingly crushed when the pandemic hit back in early 2020. Had slowly recovered, and then Delta hit, and sentiment has fallen off quite significantly. Interestingly enough, the University of Michigan survey, at least for August, that was a pandemic low. Uh, the conference board surveys held up. And, uh, done, has done better. Uh, some of that goes just to the, the types of questions that are asked in the surveys. The conference board is more labor market oriented, and labor markets have performed very, very well. And so it's, the blue line has uh, done a little bit better than the green line, which is more around personal finance issues. But, uh, you know, both show that uh, Delta have, has spooked consumers. Uh, going back to my point that I think people were hoping that with the vaccine, this thing was over, but uh, those hopes have been dashed. You can also see it in spending, um, the, Delta, the impact of the Delta variant on spending. Air travel has fallen back a bit. Uh, restaurant 
bookings are down a bit. Um, you know, people have uh, pulled back a little bit uh, on uh, getting out there. That more people have been sheltering in place. You can see that the supply chains, uh, obviously global supply chains, have been severely disrupted by the pandemic, uh, and they're just now more jumbled as a result of Delta. Delta really nailed Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, and a lot of the supply chains uh, begin there, uh, particularly the chip industry. You know, a lot of chip plants in Malaysia, for example, they had to shut because uh, workers just were too sick. Uh, ports in uh, various ports, uh, terminals and ports in China were shut down as the Chinese have the no tolerance policy with regard to the, the, the pandemic and shut things down, and that uh, really is further exacerbated the supply chain issues, created more shortages, disrupted the vehicle industry. No, There's no, just simply no inventory, and that's crippling sales. Hurting uh, the construction industry, home building, uh, because of building materials and appliances. So uh, it's uh, really hurt uh, you know, significantly. Price, put more upper pressure on prices, uh, adding to inflationary pressures, which I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, but, you know, the risk here, you know, again, my assumption is that this pandemic will continue to wind down, but the definitive risk is that the next wave is actually more of a problem. You know, it's more contagious, more virulent, uh, is, uh, is it, you know, obviously there's eluded our vaccines. That would, uh, that would change the ballgame here. Uh, so, you know, risk number one is the pandemic itself. Risk number two is fiscal policy. Uh, got a little bit of good news in the last week. The uh, administration, Congress, came to terms on providing short-term funding for the federal government so that it could continue to operate for a couple more months before it needs more funding, avoiding a government shutdown. But uh, two things on the docket here that need to get ironed out uh, pretty quickly. The first is the debt limit, uh, and there's a, a lot of brinkmanship around this going on. I don't know if you're following kind of the, uh, what's going on in D.C., but uh, Republicans and Democrats are really battling over this debt limit. Uh, Republicans are insisting that the Democrats figure out a way to uh, increase uh, the debt limit on their own. Um, Democrats are arguing that they, they can't do it, uh, uh, at least uh, not without uh, the Republicans kind of stepping aside and not uh, filibustering efforts to uh, suspend the debt limit. Republicans are insisting that Democrats can. Uh, they can include it under the reconciliation uh, uh, legislation, pass it. In that case, they'd have to, because of the reconciliation rules, only, they can only increase it. They can't suspend it, but they could do it on their own uh, with only Democratic votes. So uh, the brinkmanship here is uh, very high. And brinkmanship around that one is, uh, it does damage. You know, it's not, it's not costless. Even though at the end of the day, lawmakers have at least historically figured out a way to increase the debt. I mean, you can see that here in this slide. This shows the uh, U.S. Uh, the four-week U.S. Treasury yield, the Treasury yield on U.S. Uh, 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 Treasury securities, uh, one-month uh, uh, T-bills. Uh, back in the uh, 2011 uh, debt limit uh, kerfuffle, and then in the 2013 kerfuffle, T is uh, the drop dead date for raising the debt ceiling. So you can see in the period leading up to that drop dead date, uh, T-bill yields rise because the folks that have that four-week uh, bill are pricing in the uh, probability that they may not get paid on time. 
and that would you know wreck their return, and so they uh, they jack up the yield uh, as you approach that uh, drop dead date. Same thing is starting to happen now. Uh, I think last yesterday the four four week T bill yield had risen about seven eight basis points from where it was just a couple weeks ago. So not quite to where we were in 2011 or 2013, but my guess is we'll get there because I don't think lawmakers are going to nail this thing down until uh, we get to the drop dead date. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty around exactly when that's going to occur. Uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has identified October 18th. CBO says no, probably later in the month, maybe even as late as early November. We're estimating, uh, Bernard Yaros and I did a a paper on the debt limit that you can find if you uh, go to Economic View or you Google it, Zandi debt limit, you'll find it. That the drop dead date is October 20th. There's some uh, big Social Security payment due on that date. Uh, But uh, uh, but because of the uncertainty around the timing of when the Treasury receives its tax payments and outlays because of the uh, pandemic, the scrambled kind of timing of outlays, and of course the uh, assistance related to Hurricane Ida and other um, and fires, the federal government assistance fires, hard to know when checks are going to get cut, so that makes things very complicated. Now, my baseline here is obviously that lawmakers uh, will uh, settle this in time before they actually, the government actually defaults, probably through the reconciliation process. But I'd have to say there's not any consequential risk here that there's a misstep and we might actually see a default. Uh, you know, if it's a, if it's a, a day or two, uh, I think we see turmoil in markets and that would be what we require to get lawmakers to act quickly, which I think they would. But if they don't act quickly for whatever reason and they get bogged down and let's say this thing drags on to November or so, like say Thanksgiving, let's say that's a, that's kind of the scenario we considered in the paper I, I mentioned. Uh, that would be uh, that would be the fodder for another recession. So uh, you know a lot of a lot of risk around this. The other aspect of what's going on in D.C. is around the Build Back Better agenda. I mentioned this uh, earlier. Uh, a lot of different scenarios on how this may play out, uh, and uh, just to give you a sense of what it means for the economy. Uh, under these different scenarios is uh, the unemployment rate, which I'm showing you here. This is quarterly data from Q1 2019 through the end of 2024. Uh, you can uh, see where I think full employment is. As I mentioned earlier, that would be consistent with an unemployment rate in the mid-threes. Uh, this is based on simulations of our model of the economy, the global economy, our macro, of the macro economy. The blue line represents the unemployment rate if there had been no additional policy under Biden. So let's assume no American Rescue Plan. That's the plan, the $1.9 trillion support package that got passed in March of 2021. And you can see if we had not gotten the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, uh, the economy would have struggled this year. Unemployment would have uh, hovered around uh, high, in the high fives, close to 6%. Uh, it would ultimately have... Uh, fallen as the pandemic wound down, but it would have been a you know more painful kind of scenario. The red line represents the unemployment rate uh, if uh, no additional support is provided. So we got the ARP, it helped you know, push unemployment down. We're now at 5.2% on the unemployment rate. Uh, but you know, what if we don't get any additional support? You can see it kind of kind of goes sideways here, at least in terms of unemployment uh, and. Uh, you know, uh, the economy doesn't get quite across the finish line to, to full employment. 
The green line, that represents our baseline. So we get, we had the American Rescue Plan, the ARP. We get the $550 billion infrastructure plan that's bipartisan. And then we get a $2.5 trillion reconciliation package that's the social infrastructure. And that kind of lands the plane, the economy, right on the tarmac. The green line kind of uh, just goes to full employment. And, you know, that, that's the optimistic baseline scenario that we have. By the way, the $2.5 trillion is kind of the midpoint of the current $3.5 trillion on the table and the $1.5 trillion that uh, moderate Senate uh, Democrat Joe Manchin from West Virginia said he's willing to vote for. So I'm assuming that, you know, 3.5, 1.5, the compromise is 2.5. At the moment, it feels like it might be a little smaller than that, you know, closer to 2. Um, but uh, we're, we're still assuming 2.5. Uh, we are sending some pay-fors here, some tax increases on large corporations and uh, kind of rolling back some of the tax cuts for large corporations and the well-to-do, high-income, high-net households that will pay for uh, of, the, of the three trillion in total support, the five fifty billion infrastructure, the two point five trillion reconciliation, three, roughly three trillion. We're assuming about two trillion of that is is paid for, so that leaves a budget deficit. And these are all, all over ten year periods, budget horizon of the CBO leaves a budget deficit of about a trillion dollars or about a hundred billion per annum. Uh, and that, but the green line is kind of the, uh, the optimistic uh, baseline. Uh, I, I did though, uh, uh, run this, this scenario where we get the three, what's on the table now, the 3.5 trillion. And you can see the, that's the, the uh, gray line. Uh, the uh, unemployment rate actually falls through the full employment unemployment rate. And I would say that that uh, does run the risk of uh, uh, generating inflation that is uncomfortably high, uh, will cause the Fed Reserve to tighten monetary policy more than we're anticipating, and that that is the water for a more kind of classic business cycle, you know, an overheating economy. So I do think, you know, it, it, the, the, the uh, lawmakers do have to essentially thread a needle here. They don't want it to be too small, uh, but they don't want it to be too big either. Otherwise, uh, you know, you run the risk of overheating. Uh, I will say, and I didn't show it here, but I do think uh, the, the infrastructure uh, plan reconciliation package, if passed, will help to support longer-term economic growth. The infrastructure plan, mostly through stronger, somewhat stronger labor productivity, it's small, but, you know, uh, small positive. And the social infrastructure plan around higher labor force participation, mostly uh, because it uh, provides support for child care and elder care and disability and paid family, which should help to support labor, higher labor force participation, particularly among female workers and uh, lower income uh, households of uh, families of color where participation rates are relatively low. So it does provide some uh, uh, long-term benefits. Of course, the climate change does address an issue that I do think is going to have significant longer-term implications for the economy. But nonetheless, a lot of risk around that. So that's risk number two. Risk number three is inflation. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this. Uh, you know, I am assuming, expecting that inflation will moderate, that it is transitory, as the Fed would say, that it is related to the pandemic. As the pandemic winds down, as I anticipate, global supply chains start to iron themselves out uh, because of the higher prices. Businesses respond by ramping up uh, capacity, uh, investing more, which they appear to be doing. It takes a little bit of time, but by this time next year, certainly as we move into 23, Inflation moderates uh, and uh, close to the Fed's target, which 
is for uh, the core consumer expenditure of later inflation, uh, excluding food and energy prices, be just north of 2%. And I think that's where we settle, you know, roughly by the spring of 2023. But, I, you know, obviously a lot of risk around that. Uh, you know, in addition to the pandemic, I could be overly optimistic about how quickly these supply chains, you know, kind of work things through. I could also be overly optimistic about how uh, quickly the labor market kind of adjusts. There's 11 million close to uh, open job positions, uh, and uh, that's a record by by orders of magnitude. You have to go even before the pre, you know, just before the before the pandemic, when the labor market was tight, we had six and a half, seven million open positions. So we got to fill those positions, and if we don't. Uh, then that means higher wages and higher inflation than I'm anticipating. Now, again, I do think the pandemic is behind. Why is taking longer for workers, uh, available workers, uh, in and out of the workforce to uh, take those open positions? You know, taking care of kids, taking care of elderly family members, worried about getting sick. You know, uh, there's a lot of issues related to the pandemic and that they'll iron themselves out as the pandemic winds down. But, um you know, a lot of risk around that as well. So inflation uh, could be more of a deal than I'm anticipating. Uh, that's risk number three, downside risk number three. Downside risk number four uh, is asset prices. Uh, they're they're juiced up. They're pretty uh, lofty. Valuations are high. Uh, you can see that in the equity market here, the stock market. This is uh, my favorite measure of valuation in the stock market. This is kind of like an economy-wide price earnings multiple. The numerator is the value of all publicly traded stocks as measured by the Wilshire 5000. The denominator is economy-wide corporate earnings. We've got data back to the start of 1980. The last data point is for the second quarter. Excuse me. Yes, excuse me. For the second quarter of 2021, a little bit lag. And you can see the PE multiple by this measure is back to where it was in uh, late 90s, early 2000, Y2K. Y2K, that was a bubble. I don't think there's any debate about that. Uh, I, I don't think the current high valuation signal a bubble today. I mean, there is speculation creeping into the equity markets and asset markets more broadly. You know, GameStop, uh, mean stocks, uh, SPACs are all symptomatic of that. But, you know, valuation should be high given how low uh, interest rates have been and how low they're uh, expected to remain. But uh, regardless, I think uh, valuations are high. And I do think the correction, you know, stock prices – have gone kind of sideways here for the last several months, in part because interest rates are starting to push a little bit higher. Uh, I, I do think uh, in our baseline we have stock prices essentially going staying flat here for another year, 18 months, let corporate earnings catch up, let, you know, let it adjust to the higher interest rate environment that I'm anticipating. But I, I, do, I do think there's a lot of risk around this. We could see a much more significant correction in equity prices uh, for a much more sustained on a much more sustained basis, and that, that could do some damage to the economic recovery that I'm anticipating. Uh, I, as I mentioned, other asset prices are, are juiced. Uh, in addition to equity prices, uh, the fixed income markets are juiced. Credit spreads in the bond market are very thin. Obviously, what's going on in the crypto markets. And then, of course, uh, the housing market is also uh, really feels really juiced up. Uh, you can see that here. Uh, in this uh, map of the country, this is for the 100 largest metropolitan statistical areas across the country. Here, what we've done is uh, uh, calculated price to rent ratios. Again, kind of like a price earnings multiple. So the price of the home in the numerator, the effective rent in that area in the denominator, 
in the long run, the price-to-rent ratio should be roughly consistent with its long-run historical norms, which varies quite a bit by market for, for lots of different reasons. Uh, what I've done here is for those areas where the pr current price-to-rent ratio is consistent or within 10% of its long-run historical norm, I'd say that's appropriately valued. They're in green. Those are metropolitan areas that are in green. So my home, Chris's home in uh, Philly, you can see where Philly is. That's in green. Our home is appropriately valued, at least by this measure. If your uh, area in orange, you're somewhat your PR ratio, your price rent ratio is about 10 to 20% above historical norms, so you're overvalued. And if you're in red, well, seriously overvalued, more than 20% uh, by this measure, mostly in the West and in parts of the South. Uh, this is not meant to be, um, you know, uh, an indicator that's proof positive. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't rely on this by itself, but this is a good kind of screen, if, if you're in orange, certainly in red, it's saying, hey, come look at me, what's going on, is there a reason why uh, uh, that, uh, you know, prices are all juiced up relative to rents by historical norms. Uh, uh, nationwide, uh, it does feel like uh, prices are, uh, again, I, I don't, I would call it, there's a, it's not a bubble, it's not speculative, you don't see the kind of flipping we have historically, uh, the lending, the mortgage lending has been very responsible. Credit scores on mortgage loans have remained very high. So I don't think, you know, this is anything comparable to what we saw, let's say, prior to the financial crisis. But nonetheless, as interest rates rise, I think some of these markets, particularly the red markets, are at significant risk of, if not prices going uh, down, certainly going flat for a while. And that would be expected on price declines. So something to watch. Uh, not, I don't think this is existential. Uh, by itself to the economic recovery, uh, but, you know, it, it is uh, a big enough risk that it could change the contours of the economic recovery, certainly some of these markets around, around, the, around the country. Finally, risk number five, downside risk number five, uh, uh, the increase in debt, uh, particularly sovereign debt, uh, uh, as governments across the globe have uh, followed the same policy prescription and borrowed a lot of money, uh, to help support their economies, and uh, I do think it, uh, with the leveraging up uh, as interest rates uh, do normalize and rise, uh, that will create some problems, and we could see some real stress fault lines in sovereign debt. Similar kind of dynamic in corporate debt, and not everywhere. I don't think that's as big an issue here in the U.S., although, you know, it's something to watch. The leveraged loan market uh, has been very active, but it's a much bigger deal in other parts of the world like China. Uh, just to uh, explain this chart, uh, the x-axis is the uh, debt-to-GDP ratio uh, for sovereigns as of the fourth quarter of 2020. The y-axis is the so-called concept of fiscal space. That's the difference between the actual debt-to-GDP ratio and that debt-to-GDP ratio that uh, we estimate uh, to be above which uh, investors begin to lose faith that they're going to get paid in a timely way, jack up interest rates, and get into this kind of self-reinforcing negative cycle. And you can see a number of countries, particularly in the emerging markets, you know, Russia, United Arab Emirates, you know, some, some developed economies, you can see Spain, Italy, you know, Japan, very close to that zero fiscal space line. So that means that, you know, some of these economies uh, are at significant risk of uh, suffering some kind of event maybe even a crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, you know, as rates rise. Uh, not, not, I don't think this year, next year, but as rates normalize towards mid-decade, this, this will become, I think, more of an issue.
Finally, let me end on a positive note. I said I would, uh, and I do want to highlight what I consider to be the most uh, meaningful uh, upside risk to the outlook, and that's productivity growth. Uh, I'm showing you non-farm business productivity growth here, quarterly data back to 1990. Last data point is the second quarter of 2021. <clears throat> the blue line represents the year-over-year growth in productivity, the five-year, the green line, the five-year uh, annualized growth just to smooth out the volatility that gets the underlying trend. You can see that productivity growth really <coughs> did slump uh, in the uh, expansion after the financial crisis. You know, uh, just, just for context, between World War II and the financial crisis, uh, non-farm business productivity grew about 2% per annum, almost on the nose. You know, sometimes at times a little stronger, other times a little weaker, but on average, 2%. In the expansion after the financial crisis, the decade after, it was about 1%. But look at it now. It's, it's been <clears throat> migrating higher. It's closing on 2% again. Now, some of that may be just cyclical. Some of it may just be measurement. You can see during, you know, when you come out of recessions like you did after the financial crisis or after the pandemic, you get this pop in productivity growth for various measurement and actual uh, more fundamental reasons. So there may be a cyclical element to what's going on here, but it does feel like uh, things are improving. Businesses are investing very strongly. They did so in the pandemic, and post-pandemic, that investment remains strong. And a lot of it towards labor-saving technology, because I do think businesses realize that uh, there's going to be uh, you know, severe labor shortages going forward. Uh, and in our baseline, we, we're assuming that productivity has, has improved from about the 1% pre-pandemic, you know, in the, in the post-financial crisis period, so about 1.5% per annum. But, you know, I do think the risk, there's a risk here, upside risk here, that it could be back up closer to 2. And I think there's some good fundamental reasons for that. We can go into that if you're interested in the Q&A. But if that's the case, if it's 2%, that, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, that has a lot to say about future income growth, the profitability, asset price returns, our ability to address our fiscal issues, uh, the, where interest rates are going to land. I mean, enormous implications. So something to keep uh, an eye on, uh, and, and hopefully we get that positive surprise. Okay, I uh, covered a boatload of ground. I took exactly 45 minutes. Uh, I am going to stop and uh, turn the conversation back to Chris. And, Chris, uh, I'm hoping that we got some, some questions uh, from the group. Yeah, we sure did. We have some great questions. Uh, keep flowing in, so do encourage audience to keep asking away. But uh, let's see how many of these you can get through. And I'll pick up with your last slide. Right? One of my favorite topics is, is productivity. And there was a question that came in um, regarding reshoring of manufacturing production in the U.S. And I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on that. Do you expect to see that continue or accelerate or slow down, or how is the uh, productivity and the trade picture going to uh, shake out over the next few years? Yeah, great question. And I should say, as a preface, uh, Chris, you and one of our other colleagues, Dante D'Antonio, wrote a, a good paper on productivity growth, uh, and uh, it was kind of a, a point-counterpoint. And I think you were arguing that for the upside surprise here, and Dante for the downside surprise, is that right, or was it the other way around? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. That's right. That's I'm, right. I'm the techno-optimist. Yeah. You're a techno-optimist, right, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think there's many, many elements to this, and one of which is, uh, you know, I do think we will see 
uh, reshoring continue. Uh, I do think American businesses, I think businesses all around the planet, uh, are reevaluating their supply chains given what they are have been going through and what they're still going through. Uh, those supply chains are very, very long and very vulnerable, as we can see. And, you know, it's not just the pandemic. There's been other events that you know, kind of highlight this risk. I mean, the, the, uh, the earthquake in Japan back in 2011 that significantly disrupted um, the auto industry, for example. Uh, you know, if that was the end of the story, I think most companies would have ignored it. But, you know, you throw in the pandemic, and I think, you know, that just strikes, point, strikes home the point that, Supply chains are, are long, uh, they're at risk, they're very vulnerable, and can lead to significant disruption. Uh, also, adding to this is uh, the growing tension or the very high level of tension between the United States and China. And, you know, it seems to have abated a bit under President Biden. President Trump obviously took a very combative approach. President Biden has not stood down and has continued to maintain the tariff, higher tariffs that uh, President Trump put into place and, uh, you know, continues to, you know, engage China quite aggressively, a little less publicly and a less, little less combatively. But I think everyone now has the view, appropriately so, that this relationship is a bit vexed, not going to iron itself out quickly and does, you know, pose risks to supply chains that go into Asia. And then, uh, moreover, the administration and Congress uh, have seen what happened uh, with supply chains and view it as a, I think, again, appropriately so, as a national security issue, particularly when it comes to things like semiconductors and chips, uh, because that goes into, you know, all kinds of everything, you know, including uh, military uh, equipment and sophisticated satellites and instrumentation, and, you know, crit- critical to national security, sophisticated materials and machinery also, you know, very important. So I do think the Congress administration, as part of the Build Back Better agenda, you know, are appropriating funds to help, uh, you know, harden these supply chains and bring them in. So I do expect uh, manufacturers, uh, U.S. manufacturers and others, uh, to uh, 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 retailers and, and wholesalers to, to shorten up the supply chains, uh, bring them in, reevaluate them, uh, and uh, I do think that will be a significant shift here, you know, going going forward. And I, and I do think, uh, you know, it is an element of, uh, you know, the expectation with that investment that we will see some improvement in productivity. And I, I don't get to the top of the list of reasons why productivity growth could surprise on the upside, but I think it's on the list of reasons. All right. Great. Uh, question about the great resignation. And in your opinion, is this a short-term phenomenon? Or is it going to linger? I, I think there's a both a cyclical near-term and a secular long-term element to what's going on in the labor market and labor supply issues. On, on a cyclical basis, I do think the pandemic has, has really scrambled things. Uh, that, uh, you know, if you look at the reasons why uh, people are uh, that are unemployed or who stepped out of the workforce during the pandemic or are coming back slowly, uh, and you can get a good sense of this by looking at the Bureau of Census Household Pulse Survey, a survey they've been conducting on a biweekly basis, more or less, since the pandemic hit. 
and it's a great survey, very large, and they ask lots of questions, and some of the questions are around, you know, if you stepped out of the workforce during the pandemic, why? And you can see there that, you know, at the top of the list are uh, taking care of kids, uh, child care, big issue. Now, that's maybe less of an issue today than it was a month or two ago because of schools reopening in person, but, uh, you know, child care is still an issue, you know, for, for people, and schools still are struggling to stay open because of the, the Delta variant and the, and the pandemic and the infections. Taking care of elderly parents, uh, fearful of getting sick, uh, taking care of sick family members or friends, you know, all those things are playing a role. A role. And, um, uh, you know, it's not until the pandemic really winds down in a more significant way. Hopefully we don't have another wave, and if we do, you know, it's clear that it's not that it's not going to be as uh, virulent or contagious or disruptive, and people start going, you know, coming back in and going, going, going back to work and, um, and taking those 11 million open positions. So I said, I, I did mention that I thought it was going to take about a year, maybe 18 months for global supply chains to right themselves. I suspect it's going to take about a year, 18 months for labor markets to kind of work through all the these issues and kind of normalize, uh, take those open positions. Uh, I do think there's a secular element here, though, too, and that is, and this is, you know, evident, this is what you were talking about in the podcast around demographics, that even pre-pandemic demographics were arguing for very tight labor markets. I mean, the baby boom generation, large cohort, is leaving the labor market quickly. It left, you know, uh, significantly during the pandemic, and those folks aren't coming back. You know, they we're probably going to only work another year, two or three anyway, and the pandemic just accelerated all that. And with stock prices and housing values where they are, you know, I think many feel, boomers feel like they have the financial wherewithal to to uh, to retire. So they're not coming back. Uh, and then, of course, immigration, foreign immigration, significant important source of supply, labor supply, both skilled and unskilled, that was under significant pressure. Uh, even before the pandemic because of shifts in uh, policy under the Trump administration. Uh, and, of course, the pandemic has just crushed, you know, immigration. I do think it will start to normalize a bit under President Biden. Uh, at least the, the, uh, a lot of more immigrants come in. But, you know, I don't think we're going – it's going to be tough to get back to the kind of immigration uh, we had uh, pre-President uh, Trump uh, just because of demographic trends, you know, uh, overseas – a, a population growth has slowed very dramatically, and once population in a country falls close to replacement rate population growth, immigration falls off very rapidly, and that's happening in more and more countries, emerging markets across the world. So I do think there's a you know a very significant secular long-term uh, issue here with regard to labor supply. I think uh, there's uh, the pandemic is going to mark a at least in our timeline, in our minds going forward, a shift in the balance of negotiating power between workers and their employers. You know, for the – up until – for 30 years, 35 years between the late – late, um, excuse me, late 1970s, early 80s through the pandemic, it was a employer's market. I think going forward, at least for the next decade, perhaps two, it's going to be a worker's market, a very, very different kind of environment. All right. All right, I'm going to give you a tough one as the last question here. Sure. Uh, question. Question about your employment assessment or employment impact assessment of the Build Back Better package. So whether it's a 2.5 or 3.5 trillion dollar uh, package, certainly that's going to provide a lot of benefits, uh, perhaps in terms of long-term productivity, as you mentioned. But there are also a number of disincentives 
or potential disincentives to work, right? Higher taxes, um, benefits, uh, going to, to things or individuals, right, that might cause them to provide less neighbors to the market. So the question how you came up with, uh, this conclusion that employment would actually increase and increase rapidly, and then a corollary to that is, um, looking at the, uh, at the pre-pandemic employment situation, right? We had High participation, employment rate was coming down, our unemployment rate was coming down. So why, why would we think that introducing this new set of, uh, spending would actually improve upon that, uh, that track record that we had prior to the pandemic? Well, uh, you make, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. They're really good questions. Uh, the first part with regard to labor force participation and the impact of the Build Back Better agenda on participation. Uh, the, the, you're right. Uh, there are a lot of cross currents here. Some elements of the package would support a particular higher participation rate. Some elements would, uh, weigh on participation. Uh, but I think the net of all those cross currents is to lift participation. Uh, and that, that is consistent with, uh, let's call it a meta study of all the various, uh, academic and other research that's been done on, you know, these kinds of policies and what they mean for participation rates. You know, some studies, you know, found big positive effects on participation. Some saw, saw negative consequences. But the net of that meta-study, uh, which uh, informed our work, was that uh, it would be a, a net positive. I mean, say, for example, the, the point about uh, uh, higher taxes. Uh, well, these are higher taxes on people with very, very high incomes. And I don't uh, think, first of all, that's a small segment of the population uh, of the labor force. Second of all, I, I don't think that will have a, a material impact on uh, their willingness or ability to provide labor uh, to the labor market, that they're, they're motivated by many other different things. And, uh, you know, the higher tax rates isn't going to crimp their returns on that labor supply to the degree that it's going to significantly weigh on participation rates. I mean, if, in fact... Uh, all of the tax increases proposed by President Biden were passed. The effective tax rate on high-income households affected by the uh, package would only go back to its long-run historical norm, meaning back to World War II. I mean, it's effectively all it's doing is rolling back the tax cuts that were implemented under President Trump, going back to where they were prior to that and where they were on average. So I, I don't, you know, yes, all else being equal, that is a negative on participation, but I think it's very much on the margin. It gets more than washed out by the, uh, you know, the benefits of the, uh, of the uh, support to lower-income households, uh, uh, female workers, uh, family, uh, workers of color, where participation rates are very low, and it, it's very clear that they're not working because it, the commute costs are too high, uh, they have to live in housing that's far away from their work because of affordable housing shortages. Uh, that the cost of childcare is too high. And they have to take, they don't get paid family leave, so they, you know, they can't go, they can't stay in the workforce when something happens uh, to, to, the, to them or their family. They're the main caregiver. Uh, that is that is uh, much higher as a consequence of say elasticity uh, than uh, the tax rate impacts on uh, high income households. But, but there's a, you know, there, that's a, a lot of moving parts there and, uh, you, uh, you know, a lot, lot to disentangle. But, you know, the net of all of that 
uh, disentangling is that I think it would it would materially lift uh, participation rates. Um, uh, it, it does the Build Back Better agenda does lift uh, employment, uh, but only so far as it lifts labor force participation. Because it, you know, if you're at a full in a economy that's at full employment, and again, I'm arguing that's where we're headed. Uh, your the amount of jobs can only be equal to the number of uh, of the, the increase in the number of jobs can only be equal to the increase in the number of labor in the labor force. Otherwise, you overheat. So I, you know, I I do expect more jobs uh, because I expect higher labor force participation and a bigger labor force. But it, it, it's 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 not it's not a I think the word you use large increase in employment. Uh, you know, some near-term effects, you know, because you have excess labor supply because of high unemployment and underemployment because a lot of people step out of the workforce. So you get some more, you get more bigger uh, employment effects early on, but in the long run over the next 10 years, the employment effects, I'd say, are, you know, they're modest. They're consistent with, uh, you know, the increase in the labor force. No more and, and, and no, no less than that. But the debate can be continued for sure. Absolutely. Lots of complexity and lots of difficulty. So I think we're at the top of the hour here. Great. And, uh, yeah, I think we should. And, uh, what we'll do, like we do with all these webinars, we'll, we'll, we're, we're going to answer all these questions. Uh, so, you know, if you have any additional, keep firing away. Uh, Heather, the producer of the, uh, the webinar, will will bring them together, and I will respond to them uh, in writing, and we'll distribute that to everybody so that everyone on the webinar can see the Q&A. Uh, so if you have questions, you know, no need to stop you know, posing them. Feel free to continue to post them. But I do want to thank Chris for uh, graciously uh, and seeing this, and uh, to the audience for attending. And again, inside economics. I know I'm talking it. Uh, you'll enjoy it. I promise. Uh, so, so come, come and, and visit inside economics. Thank you, everyone. Take care now. Thank you.